0: it is so nice to have you all with us so i really enjoy reading biographies of historically significant people and when i do i often laugh when i come across words or phrases that they said in the old days but they just don't really use anymore and uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, theodore roosevelt he uh he didn't like to curse so he would get really creative when he was angry with somebody so i want to read to you a couple phrases from over a hundred years ago, and I want you to just kind of pay attention to how you can get a general idea of what it is that the speaker felt and what they were trying to say, even without knowing what all the words mean, alright? So this is what Teddy Roosevelt said to one of his political, about one of his political rivals. He said, He is a hypocritical haberdasher, an ill-constituted creature. He is oily but with bristles sticking up through the oil. (laughs) This is what he said about his one-time friend-turned-enemy, William Taft. He said, he is a flub dub with a streak of second-rate and common within him. He is a puzzle wit and a fathead. (laughs) Talking about uh, Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan Teddy Roosevelt said, he is a professional yodeler, nothing but a human trombone. And uh, talking about a a British diplomat that he felt had crossed him, he said, he seems to have a brain of about eight guinea pig power. It's useless to have a creature of such mutton suit consistency. (laughs) Now in each of these quotes, we can get the general idea, right? We can get the idea that he didn't like the person that he was talking about, even though a lot of the meaning has been lost over the years in the century that's past. This is true with a lot of quotes in history, and I think that this is true with the Bible as well. Though there's many sayings in the Bible that are very familiar and even comforting to us, sometimes there's just things within them that have been lost over the years. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven statements that fit this description, things that are familiar, things that we can understand. Nevertheless, there's, there's words or there's meaning that's been lost. Over time, So for the next two months, we're going to study these seven statements, the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And each week, we're going to take one of these statements where Jesus says, I am something. We're going to kind of unpack what the original audience would have understood that statement as meaning. And then, of course, how that's relevant and applicable to us today. So this afternoon, we turn to John 6, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. And if we're honest, that's a little bit like that quote by Teddy Roosevelt. We have a pretty good idea of what it meant, but clearly more is being said than we fully understand. So let's study this famous declaration where Jesus said, I am the bread of life from John 6, 35. And let's just break it down quickly in three parts. Number one, let's talk about the context or the situation that this claim came in the midst of. Number two, let's talk about what this statement would have likely meant to the original audience. And then in section three, let's talk about the so what. Let's apply what Jesus is asking us to discover and pursue as a result of this declaration. Let me just throw these questions out to you. Are you spiritually hungry? Are you discontent in this life? Are you seeking? Are you wandering? Are you waiting on something? Are you anxious? unsure of what your future holds, if any of those questions are questions that are on your heart right now, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6 as we unpack how we are meant to center our daily thoughts and our focus and our hope on Jesus Christ. All right, section one, let's jump right in. What is the context that Jesus, like what is the situation, what are the surrounding circumstances that were going on when Jesus said that he was the bread of life. And I think a really thoughtful place to start is actually the very last verse in the book of John. Uh, Actually, it's the last verse of chapter 20. And the author of the Gospel of John kind of gives us a clue as to what he was thinking when he wrote this Gospel. And he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So right there, John is telling us his goal of everything that he wrote in the Gospel of John. And it's twofold. Number one, John wants us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God to deliver us. And number two, Jesus came to bring us life. And if those are the two main ideas or the two themes of the book of John, I'd like to propose that those are also the two main things that Jesus is inferring when he tells us that he is the bread of life. He is the one sent to deliver us. He is the one sent to bring us a life that lasts. All right, as I was reading uh, this passage this week, one of my study Bibles said this. It said, The signs and the miracles in this chapter, in John chapter 6, call to mind corresponding events in the history of Israel. In other words, there's a lot of things going on in John chapter 6 as you kind of skim through it right now that would have reminded the audience of other stories in the Bible. Have you guys ever been watching a movie and the plot reminds you of a plot to another movie? Has a story ever reminded you of another story? Let me give you a couple examples. West Side Story is a 1960s musical version of Romeo and Juliet surprised you didn't know that. (laughs) In 2004, a a cute movie came out with Jennifer Gardner. It was called 13 Going on 30, and it's about this character who kind of goes through the movie in two different phases, partly as an adult, partly as a child, and as those experiences line up, the character is able to kind of make these realizations that maybe their life isn't going in the direction they always intended it to go. My wife asked me, did you like that movie? And I said, yeah, I liked it the first time I saw it in 1988 when it was called Big with Tom Hanks, right? Same exact movie. This one's going to blow your mind. Home Alone is Die Hard with a Kid. (laughs) Underdog, battling bad guys on Christmas. Avatar is Dances with Wolves in Outer Space. And the list goes on and on. There's times where stories remind us of other stories. And that's something that should be going through our head when we read the Bible. It's exactly what the original audience would have been thinking about here as John 6 unfolds. Let me just briefly bring up three stories that Jesus is referring to or duplicating or using to teach from the Old Testament as he gives us this teaching here about being the bread of life. The first one is the Passover, okay? Uh, Listen to what it says here in John 6.4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. John isn't throwing that detail in there for no reason. It was Passover time, and people were thinking about Passover. And uh, later on, in the same context, in John 6.51, Jesus is talking about the flesh that gives life, and that was read to us by the worship team. As we think back to the original Passover, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God was about to bring their great deliverance. And they were told, each household was, kill, was told to kill a lamb and to spread the blood over the doorpost. And then God's judgment would go over that household as it brought death to the Egyptian oppressors. And to this day, Jewish people still eat a lamb on Passover. And as they eat the meat of that lamb, it reminds them of that story when that first Passover occurred and the flesh of that lamb brought deliverance to the people in that story. When Jesus is saying that he is the flesh that gives life, he's saying Passover is about me. Passover was all about a greater deliverance that I came to provide. The original audience would have been starting to make some of those connections. This seems like a random detail, but listen to uh, what it tells us here in John 6 19. Just talking about how there's many echoes in this story that are supposed to make us think of other stories. When they had rowed about three or four miles, rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. That seems like maybe Jesus walking on the water wouldn't need to be in this story about the uh, bread of life. Maybe that's uh, a little out of place if we're just reading through it quickly. Listen to what it says uh, in Psalm 77:19. It says, "It's talking about God, and it says, "Your path led through the sea." your way through the mighty waters, even though your footprints were not seen. say one of the characteristics of God is that he brings deliverance through the waters. That's something the original audience would have thought about God. And in this very story, Jesus walks through the water to help his friends who are in a storm. And that, of course, is referring to Exodus, right? When God's people walked through the Red Sea and God split the waters, deliverance came through the water. And there's a third one, too, And the the story here in John 6 and verses 11 to 14 would most famously be referred to as Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that just numbers the men. That's how they counted in that particular era. So the number was probably doubled if you included women and children. So here Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's not in a city. And he feeds over 10,000 people. And that, of course, would have made this Bible-studying audience. Think of the story in Numbers 11 when the Israelites had come out of the Exodus and they were in the wilderness. And if you get a chance later this week to read Numbers 11, 1 to 9, God literally drops down bread or manna from the sky so the people in the wilderness are fed. In other words, the surrounding details or the context of John 6 involves three of the greatest deliverance and provision stories in the Old Testament. And Jesus is trying to create these details so that that original audience thinks of those provision and deliverance stories. And then when he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying those stories were meant to get you ready for a greater provision and a greater deliverance to come. And when he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying... The moment is here. I'm what you've been waiting for. Let's explore a little bit more here in section two. Let's speculate what the audience would have been thinking about as Jesus is saying the provision and the deliverance that you've been waiting for is here and I'm here to bring it for you. It's not uh, unintentional that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And even just that phrase, I am, would have been a really, really big deal. Uh, to, uh, to this audience. If we think back to uh, Moses talking to God in Exodus 3:13 to 14, Moses said to God, "Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, "The God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask,What is His name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, "I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am." has sent me to you. You know, in the Jewish culture, you're not even allowed to say the name of God because it's considered so holy. He doesn't have a name like Frank or Tom or just a common name like that. But the closest thing that God gives to his name is I am. And so again, when Jesus stands up to this crowd and says, I am the bread of life, it's not just a throwaway phrase. He's saying, I am God. I am. He's saying that He's God. And not only is he God, but by saying he's bread, he's saying, I'm the daily allotment of God brought here for you. Bread means a lot of things uh, in the Bible. Uh, there's a couple that are listed here. Uh, there's, a, there's two lists that are in your sermon notes. Bread almost always is representative of God taking care of us. In uh, Luke: 153. When Mary is told by the angels that uh, she's going to have this son, she's talking about the attributes of God in this famous song that she delivers. And one of the lines she gives in verse 53 of uh, Luke 1 is, is, God has filled the hungry with good things. If you think about the story of Ruth, there's this widow and her mother-in-law, and they're about to starve, and God saves them by bringing bread. In uh, 2 Kings 4, there's this story of Elisha who miraculously feeds this crowd of people with bread. There's probably another half dozen examples that are listed in your sermon notes, but uh, it would be very apparent to people who study their Bibles that God provides and He provides through bread. That's one of the things that bread represents. It's a theme that God is going to give you what you need. A second thing that uh, Jesus would have been kind of teaching about here that would not have been lost on the original audience is that we're promised that even though this world is full of death and deterioration and sin and terrible things that happen to us, there's this theme in the Bible that in the future we're all going to break bread together in heaven. It's the eschatological that's the fancy word that means in future times. It's the wedding feast. It's the victory feast. And even all the way back in the Old Testament, in places like uh, Isaiah 25, 6-8, to 8, it says this, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine and the best meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain He'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations and he'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears of all faces, and he'll remove his people's disgrace from the earth. In other words, this world is often a hard and a harsh place. But in the future, God's people are going to enjoy a feast together. Uh, It's going to be full of the breaking of bread and wine, and and there's going to be no more tears because it's going to be in the future kingdom uh, where death and sin do not touch. It talks about this feast in Revelations 19.9. Jesus talks about it in Luke 14.15. And uh, it's a reminder that Jesus, when he says, I'm the bread of life, he's our invitation to that future supper. A person of faith, a Christian, a disciple can overlook death and sin in this world because we're promised a place at that table. In the future. So these are the two main things that the audience would have been contemplating when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is God's provision for us every day here, and He's also that invitation to that feast and that place without sin and without death in heaven. So let's wrap up here in section three. Let's, let's talk about the so what. Let's talk about the application for us in 2021 if Jesus invites us to think about Him as the bread of life. What does it mean for us today? I'd like to suggest two things that would challenge you to think about this week. The first one is this. Jesus is asking us to establish and to look at Him as the primary source of God's generosity and provision and care. As you think about what it means to be a spiritual person, when Jesus says He's the bread of life, He wants us to consider Him as the central way that we access God, the model that we look at, the guidance that we learn from. In uh, John 6, 1-14, we have this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, probably 10,000 people. And then, uh, listen to what it says here uh, as I contrast two more verses from this teaching. In John 6, 35, Jesus says this, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is telling us that he can offer satisfaction to us in ways that nothing else can satisfy us. But then listen to what happens at the end of the sermon. And verse 66, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's an interesting contrast. On one hand, Jesus is telling us, I'm your daily bread, and I can offer you guidance and companionship and teaching in ways that nobody else can. But then a lot of people say this teaching is hard, and they walk away. In other words, there's some people that are going to find what Jesus is promising, and there's other people that are just not going to feed on it and consume it and experience it in the way that Jesus is inviting us. Uh, At my last church, we had this little room that was our church library, and there was an interesting contrast that's always stood out to me. There was about 300 books that I guess would fit under the description of Christian novels. Some of them were like adventure stories, some were stories about missionaries, some of them were Christian romance novels where this lonely person trusted that God would send them a mate, and then he did. And, you know, there were like shelves and shelves of books that would fit that description, and then there was like one small shelf with probably 20 or 30 books that were actually about Jesus. Isn't that kind of a sad contrast? with a whole shelf of books that are about things that are kind of overlapping with spirituality, kind of about the Christian life, and then there's a really small section there about Jesus. And I think that's an interesting illustration of the way that we try to be spiritual people. There's all sorts of different speakers that we listen to. Uh, There's all sorts of different ways that we try to feel spiritual, but Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I want to be the primary way that you're spiritual. I want to be the thing that teaches you what God is like. I want to be your role model. I'm your daily bread. Spend time every day learning about how to be spiritual through me. That's the first thing that Jesus is challenging us to do. And I want you guys to think about that question. Are you making Jesus the center of your spirituality? A couple examples from my own life. In the past few months... I've just been really torn up about all the racial inequality in the country. I go to bed at night wondering how I can be better at that. How I can help people that don't feel loved and equal. And I've come across a couple passages where Jesus interacts with Samaritans and Jesus interacts with Gentiles and Jesus interacts with people who were ethnically different than he was. And the love and the truth that he he extends to those people give me guidance as to how I can do the same to people of different ethnicity that I interact with. This last year has just been absolutely filled with crisis after crisis, both in our country and also for me personally. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches how we can pray desperately and be heard by God in a time of crisis. And that's something that I'm thankful that Jesus has given me guidance for. With all the crazy things that have happened in a pandemic year, I found myself more anxious than I've ever been before. And there's a beautiful teaching within the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 6 where Jesus lays out in just an absolutely brilliant way how you can be a less anxious person. Write down Matthew 6 and read that if you want to be a less anxious person. And the list goes on and on about how ways that in the Gospels and really throughout all of Scripture that Jesus is showing us that we can find the life that God has offered to us through Jesus. If you want to be a spiritual person, yoga can straighten out your spine, but it can't straighten out your heart. And it can't straighten out your hope. Jesus is telling us that he can straighten our heart, he can can straighten our conscience, he can straighten our hope in a place that won't fall short. Let's wrap up with this. I think the second challenge for us about this statement that Jesus is the bread of life is that Jesus wants to give us hope through the hardest things of this world. When Jesus says that he's the bread of life, he wants us to find our hope and he wants us to find our victory in him. Stephanie read a passage for us that had some strange parts. Let me just wrap up with, uh, with this, referring back to verses uh, John 6:53 53 to 58, and then we'll transition into the Lord's Supper, which is really what Jesus is talking about here and what's really tying, hopefully, all this together. Jesus said, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will remain in me, and I will remain in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live in the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. That's a really strange teaching. If you're here for the first time, that is going to sound really strange. And what Jesus is talking about is communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper because he knew that through these teachings, for the next 2,000 years, every single month and in some churches every single week, people were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we talked a little bit earlier about how one of the things that the original audience would have been thinking about when Jesus was giving this sermon was, wow, that sounds a lot like the eschatological feast to come. That, come. that sounds a lot like the stories in the Old Testament that say one day on God's holy mountain, everybody is going to break bread and drink wine in a place with no death and with no sin. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that those who celebrate the Lord's Supper, which isn't a magical event, it's a metaphor. So it's saying those who trust that Jesus is our daily bread, those who trust that Jesus does give us an invitation to experience this great victory feast in heaven, those people can go through the hard things of this world with a greater hope to come. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, tells a heartbreaking story about one of his colleagues. He had a friend who was a pastor who tragically lost his wife very early, even as they still had young children in their home. And so he was driving through urban traffic with uh, his children going to his wife's funeral and he's crying and the children are crying and he's just asking God for something to help strengthen him and his children in that moment. And a bus drives by and they all stop at a red light together and he glances out the window and he has this moment of inspiration. And he says to his children on the way to the funeral of their mother, hey kids, would you rather get hit by that bus or by the shadow of that bus. The kids kind of wipe their tears and they say, Dad, we'd rather be hit by the shadow of that bus. And he says, the good news of the gospel is that because Jesus Christ took the full sting of death, we only have to pass through the shadow of death, right? And that's the hope that we have through Jesus, the bread of life. He's telling us that because he died a sinless death, because he was judged by God and not found to have any sin, He experienced a great victory. And what we're singing about in our songs to open the service and what I'm sure we'll refer to in our closing songs is like, those great things aren't true about us because we handled our business really well this week. The gospel isn't that we're good people because the teachings of Jesus have made us better people. The good news of the gospel is that because of the victory of Jesus Christ, we're invited to celebrate the great victory and the wedding feast of the Lamb the greater Passover to come. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they sing a final song or two for us, uh, we're going to just give you guys an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Um, On one hand, it's just juice. On one hand, it's just crackers. But it's more than that because it's a metaphor that those who celebrate in this ordinance are recognizing that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He's not only what we need to get through day by day in this world, it's not only great teaching, it's not only companionship, it's not only inspiration, but it's also an invitation to the eschatological feast of the Lamb in heaven. My father is withering in a nursing home with dementia. I have friends that are my age that have already passed on and are no longer on this earth. There's some in our church family who have lost children or lost a spouse. What's the hope that keeps us giving, that that, that keeps us going? It's that Jesus is the bread of life and that means that he's not only giving us what we need every day, but we also have a hope that one day we will all, all of us in God, all of us in Christ, will break bread and drink wine in heaven together and that's really what communion is all about. So in just a moment, think about the way that this is reminding us that we're all gonna celebrate a greater hope come. Just like it talked about in Isaiah, just like it talks about in Revelation, Jesus is giving us this beautiful teaching that he's our bread. He's what we need right now, day by day, but he's also our hope that we'll one day all break bread in heaven together without sin, without deterioration, and without death. So please think about that as you come forward, and uh, take some communion elements, if you so choose, and uh, come back to your uh, uh, pew as we take those together.